Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Gilded Age, the podcast where we discuss how and why we're fucked. Today, we're joined by Justin Feldman. You are a Harvard epidemiologist, uh, a social epidemiologist. Thank you so much for being here. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So the first, the first question uh, that we have for you is, can you explain to our listeners sort of what it is that you focus on and how that differs from when people hear epidemiologists that differs from, from what people might expect? Yeah. So a lot of people are newly familiar with this term epidemiology. And I think often people hear epidemiology and they think, oh, that's someone who studies infectious disease and like, how do you stop infectious disease from spreading? How do you evaluate um, like drugs and vaccines? And those are all things epidemiologists do. Uh, what I do in particular is look at how society makes people sick. Um, racism, capitalism, how do those systems produce unequal distributions of health? Uh, and I have a history of looking at uh, sort of environmental injustice of uh, something related, so occupational health, how workers get made sick by their workplaces. Uh, and then more recently, in, in the last few years since I, I got my doctorate and, and for my dissertation, I've looked at police violence and police killings using uh, public health data. Fascinating. So then let's talk about the thing that's on everybody's mind these days. Um, Parcheesi and the resurgence of that. No, um, <laughs> uh, obviously COVID. Uh, so we've, we've heard a lot about disproportionate impacts on minority communities, particularly black, indigenous and Latinx communities. Can you talk about that? Um, what, what, uh, how, what the situation really is and what people should know. Yeah. So in the United States, we've had disproportionate rates of death among uh, all, all those groups and also Pacific Islanders. Actually, Pacific Islanders have been dying at the highest rate, largely due to uh, Marshallese community in Arkansas uh, just getting really decimated by a meatpacking plant that many, many of them are employed by. Uh, I've done a bunch of work just looking at the unequal toll of COVID-19 death, and it's really concentrated among working class people of color. So if you're a black man with a college degree, you have about the same risk of dying as a white man with a high, a high school degree or less. Um, and if you're a black man or a Latino man with a, college, with a high school degree or less, you're dying at five times the rate of, of white men with college degrees. So just like extreme inequality that you really don't see with other diseases. And the main reason I think and there's growing evidence of this is that people of color, working class people of color are being exposed and infected more. It's not... So healthcare access plays a role, pre-existing conditions play a role, but I think the major cause is exposure. And working class people of color are getting exposed and infected in their jobs and in their homes. 
they, they are more likely to live in multi-generational households and bigger and more crowded households. So you easily have situations where younger person gets it at work, brings it home, infects parent or grandparent, and, and that person dies. So it, it's, it seems like the um, cohorts that you just mentioned are, are really bearing the brunt of, our, uh, of the United States um, sort of rush to reopen in our policy of um, prioritizing um, the economy and individual freedoms over um, the harder steps that would need to be taken to minimize deaths. And it seems um, that is a part of the conversation that is absent is that the consequences are, of, of this policy are not equally distributed. Yeah, I think um, it's not too, too much of a leap to say the entire U.S. pandemic response has been so poor precisely because of who has been dying. Uh, it's been lower income people of color. It's been older people, disabled people, people who are in institutions. Um, these are populations that didn't matter to the ruling elite before the pandemic and haven't been prioritized. So we've allowed a very high level of virus to spread uh, because we know who's going to have to deal with the consequences of it. That is really disappointing, and 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 something that I'd I'd like to I'd like to explore more. So throughout this entire pandemic, I've been sort of as not a public health expert, uh, sitting on the sidelines and being like, "Well, this doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, how are we still open?" Uh, why are we why are we not doing what New Zealand and other countries are doing and locking down and paying people to stay home to eliminate the virus as much as possible and uh, just and and treating it as something that we can get rid of uh, and I think I think that your answer really perfectly to the last question really perfect provides a perfect explanation that we just don't care. As our leaders don't care as much about the communities that are um, bearing the the brunt of of the the you know the virus. So, um, what what can we do as a country that would that would ease the the disparate impacts of this of this uh, pandemic? Yeah. So I'll just start by saying. It's just been such a failure, both by government and by, uh, I'm very disappointed in my fellow scientists, epidemiologists for, um, for kind of not making clear that there's different options for handling the pandemic. And there are countries that have fully eliminated community transition, transmission. There are countries that have suppressed transmission to fairly low levels. Um, and the U.S. doesn't, we've, we haven't publicly at least seen from the federal government or from states specific numerical goals in terms of like, wh what are they actually trying to achieve uh, in, in suppressing community spread? I don't, I don't know that they have any specific numerical goals. I think informally, at least, they're just trying to keep the deaths at a level that uh, makes it so that hospitals uh, and intensive care units are still available. Um, and that in some places, 
there has been no ICU capacity left, but typically they, I, I think the people in charge of the US are comfortable with almost any number of deaths. Um, you know, it's interesting that you say that because one of the, one of the reports that I did sort of um, like earlier in this pandemic was, was focusing on Cuomo's response and how he adjusted his metric before uh, the zoning metric. So in New York state, we break it down into zones based on color and like red is obviously the worst and like yellow is medium and the, you know, lighter color is fine middle darker anyway um and he changed the metric it used to be cases per 100,000 and positivity rate over seven day average and he changed that to hospital capacity and it allowed the state to stay open longer because because the the covid rates and the positivity rates just kept ticking up and up and up across the state um and by the other by his old metric we would have shut down but Cuomo didn't want to shut down again and so yeah, I mean, it does seem like our leaders just don't have, don't even consider that an option. Locking down and paying people to stay home, not an option. Not something they consider. And and in other countries, you've had, there have been debates. It has at least been made, regardless of what they did, it has been made clear that there were different policy choices beyond just, in the U.S., like, like so many other social issues, it's been cast as a culture war. Uh, between like there's the anti-maskers who you know they're reactionary uh, but they're just individuals who choose not to wear a mask and there's people who are behaving responsibly and while there's some truth to that like that's a real thing it sort of sidesteps these important policy questions there's there's essentially no policy debate um, whereas in a place like Ireland you have really like a duking it out between the, the ruling party and the opposition party. Do we have a suppression versus a elimination strategy? Um, in places like Canada and the UK, you've had groups of scientists coming together to demand paid shutdowns when uh, community spread is allowed to uh, get to very high levels. You haven't, you haven't had that in the U.S. It's just been so obscured. And, um, and I, so I, I wrote with a, a couple of, of other epidemiologists, Abby Cardis and Seth Prince. We, we published an op-ed and in, in ended up going into the nation uh, about uh, the need for a paid shutdown. So basically you close non-essential businesses, you pay people to stay home who can stay home. Um, and that's, that's a pretty effective tactic, um, but it's rare to come across a, like where nobody, it's rare to, rare to come across a high profile epidemiologist who will advocate that. Um, and I believe in, it has been since August uh, when, when the last major news outlet, New York Times published a pro shutdown op-ed that was by Michael Osterholm. Uh, and since then, and especially since Biden has come in, it's just like not been, uh, not been talked about. We, I think we, to the extent that there's a debate, it's set at a much lower level. It's like, should we have um, wedding venues open? <laughs> uh, like what should the capacity of right. indoor dining be? But it's not, not any more comprehensive than that. Right. So, so then it does, it does seem that since Biden has taken office, there's been this great 
push in media and in go- by government to say we've turned a corner. I guess everybody, you know, absolutely hated the last guy so much that it's like we have to present like the brightest face possible. But it doesn't really, you know, track. I mean, in Biden's in Biden's short time in office, we've we've had like a hundred thousand more people die in just a, a very short time. And if you do the math, it's more deaths per day than than the last administration. Now, he, unlike the last administration, has a vaccination plan, has, you know, there there it's definitely in terms of, of management a, a better um a better administration, but I, I do think that they suffer from the same shortcomings, which are that locking down is completely off the table. It's how can we best mitigate to keep businesses open while we rush to vaccinate? Um, I wanted to ask, did you see, there was a, a recent a paper that I read today that points out that, that um, less than optimal uh, antibody presence in the body creates an ideal environment for the virus to sort of mutate and select for uh, resistance. And I mean, does this, how scared are you and how scared should we be? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So uh, to start with uh, back in September before Biden was, was even president elect, Andy Slavitt, wrote a really like revealing Twitter thread about how Trump was going to solely rely on vaccination uh, as a pandemic response. And you really needed Biden because under Biden, um, there would be an acknowledgement that so-called non-pharmaceutical interventions, which range from everything from uh, test, trace, and isolate programs to uh, at times temporary um, business closures, occupational safety protections, et cetera. Um, all those are necessary in addition to vaccination. Andy Slavitt is now the COVID czar under Biden. Um, but Biden's plan sure does seem to be only relying on vaccination. At best, they will admonish states for lifting restrictions, but they will not encourage new ones um, and, and certainly not propose a paid shutdown. They had originally proposed an OSHA regulation that would protect workers from COVID. I remember um, this. But the deadline for, the self-imposed deadline for deciding uh, whether or not the regulation would come into being was March 15th. It has come and gone. Uh, they, they have not issued one. They say they're still considering it. They also said they were going to allow workers to collect unemployment uh, if they were an unsafe job. That's, I think, technically on the books and the regulations, but it's done in such a restricted way that, that I think probably zero people will benefit from it. Um, and it also kind of hinges on the existence of the OSHA regulation because it, it's, uh, it's predicated on the workplace violating local, state, or federal law. So if there's not really a law in place for specific safety measures, uh, it's hard to enforce. Um, and then that how scared should we be question. It's hard. I know I hit you with a lot there. So (laughs) I appreciate you sort of taking the time and and dissecting that, that word salad. So there's a, there's a wide range of scenarios in terms of where do we go from here 
some of which are good, some of which are pretty uh, scary. And we simply don't have enough information yet to know what, um, what's going to happen. So there was a Lancet study looking at the UK, looking at how many people were going to die uh, under various vaccination scenarios. Uh, and really there, there were the uncertainty there, they were modeling out different scenarios. One, how well do the vaccines prevent transmission? Uh, we don't fully know. It seems like uh, at least the mRNA vaccines do a pretty good job of preventing not only disease, but transmission. The other, the other question was how many people are actually gonna get the vaccine? So if I, if I were to take their results and scale them up to the US population, it was between anywhere between 5,000 and 250,000 additional deaths um, till the pandemic ended. However, that was optimistic because they, they considered immunity from COVID to be permanent. Uh, and it's probably oh. not permanent. They also didn't consider uh, these mutations. So what the thing, to me, the scariest thing right now is what they're calling um, the EEC mutation. It's like E484K, um, which is in this, it's a, the most concerning uh, right now of, of what we call escape variants or escape mutations, where the virus can mutate in a way that evades previous immunity. And that we don't know how well the vaccines work against this particular mutation. Um, it's easy to update the Pfizer Moderna vaccines to uh, protect against this new mutation, but it means that hundreds of millions of people have to be vaccinated again. Uh, and right, and we've seen how well the rollout has been. I was gonna say, so is this going to be like a every year thing for the rest of our lives that we have to go get our updated COVID shots the same way it is with flu or it very, it very well could be. Um, Justin, you're and, a millennial. You, you're, <laughs> you, you look like us. Do, yeah, do yeah. you think that, I mean, do you, how, how, how worried should we be that like when we're 70, we'll still, we'll like, Oh, I just, you know, oh, I have this coronavirus thing. Oh, I'm dying of coronavirus in my seventies. Oh, I remember when this first emerged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I like, to want, it's a political question whether or not we allow that to happen. It very well could. Um, if it doesn't happen, it'll either be, be because our policies prevented it or because we got lucky. Seems like we got lucky is the more, the more <laughs> accurate, more likely of those scenarios. Um, yeah, so, so it does seem like the Biden administration has just sort of continued this Trump era policy of relying on vaccinations and not really doing much else. Um, he's not politicizing mask wearing. He's not doing, uh, you know, he's not, he's not undermining public health that way, but in terms of, in terms of the, the things that might actually contain this virus, he, he does not um, seem on board or, or capable. Do you think that this is a failure of, uh, I mean, I, I think I know your answer to this, but do you think this is sort of a failure of like the neoliberal dogma that has dominated DC and uh, the US for the last 40 years that government can't really, shouldn't really be the primary engine of society, that less government is good, less intervention is good. Um, do you see this as a continuation of that or on that continuum? 
It was so striking just seeing, I think it was almost exactly a year ago today, Trump stood up and his plan was like the CEO of CVS, the CEO of Walgreens, the CEO of all these, uh, of Walmarts that were going to use their parking lots. And it was like, this is, this is the plan guys. Yeah. The, the countries that have done a good job containing or even eliminating uh, coronavirus have subordinated business interests to a, uh, a coordinated plan that prioritizes people's lives over profit. Um, when they, as soon as they found out, one, as we were saying before, who COVID kills, and two, uh, that the stock market and real estate industry um, and high-paying jobs could do just fine, uh, even amid an unmitigated pandemic. Um, the public health, uh, you know, the, the necessity for a public health response and a strong public health response became, you know, something they could discount. Because the, the people it was disproportionately affecting didn't have the same political economic clout. So we, we uh, pushed them into the COVID volcano for the stock market god. You know, I have to say, Justin, <laughs> listening to your answers here, it, it really is, it, it's very, di- you're very direct and clarifying. And a lot of these, these are, your answers make sense of a lot of things that, uh, that I've sort of been struggling to, to understand even though I have this poli-sci law background, like, like, why are we doing this? Why this doesn't make sense. It's obvious that we need to do X, Y, and Z. Why aren't we doing it? And like, like, Oh, how naive I feel now. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That makes, that makes a ton of sense. Once we realize that the stock market could uh, survive the public health aspect sort of fell away. And you, you do see that continuing under Biden then. Yeah, absolutely. I think, and I think a lot about like how different groups of people experience the pandemic differently. Um, and if you're not even rich, but if you're um, an epidemiologist working for a university, for example, this pandemic presents itself as a series of inconveniences. And some of the inconveniences are public health measures themselves. So we, we see all this commentary. Um, I think the Atlantic magazine has been particularly bad in, in running these sorts of pieces about like, can you go on va- uh, vacation or what kind of vacation can you go on with your child? Mm-hmm. Or like the story opening debate or all, all these different things um, that, you know, they, they really like, I'm not, I'm not really that big on standpoint theory in general, but I think in this particular crisis, um, the, the different ways people are experiencing this, including scientists, including experts, are really shaping not just the policy, but the narrative around uh, like what are the problems that need to be solved. Uh, and, and these questions of like who actually gets harmed are kind of hand-waved away. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the Atlantic because, you know, Emily Oster, P- Professor Oster is not uh, a public health expert. She is notably a, an economics professor. Um, and I think it is it is somewhat noteworthy that she is a, an economics professor, considering that, you know, businesses are doing just fine. 
that those those differences this as you said the sort of from where you're from where you're approaching the pandemic is just fine uh, but it's not it's not quite the same for working class people of color in this country it's not the same for working class people generally who have to go out into and and can't work from home or or you know who who are being required to go back into offices and risk their lives for safety um or for for a paycheck it it wasn't one of one of the one of the most kind of striking lines i saw it was i think it was in a new yorker article shortly after this started about how it was affecting new york city and all the the wealthy people fleeing um it was that pandemics take an x-ray of the class structure of, of societies and um i mean boy has has that really been the way this kind of panned out um, yeah Absolutely. And, and not only that, but I think it's going and already has started to increase economic inequality. Um, like looking at billionaires in the US have, have earned more collectively more than a trillion dollars since the pandemic started. You have all of these troubled businesses um, who troubled because they rely on things like uh, hospitality, uh, indoor dining, whatever. Um, these are now distressed assets that private equity groups are gearing up to take over, further consolidating ownership. Uh, so this, the, the economic effects, as well as the health effects, are going to be here for, for a long time. Do you think that that is going to be, you think that's going to be long lasting? Um, in other words, these, these shifts are kind of for keeps. Um, and it's not something that as we as we restart the economy, um, which it looks like, you know, we have a, a, at least a navigatable path forward to how that looks, that things will return. It'll be even more stratified than it than it was. Yeah, I, th I think it's likely um, like back goes back to the Naomi Klein shock doctrine thing, like never, never let a crisis go to waste. And there's always. When there's a crisis, there is room to contest and change relations of class and power. And the left is so weak and really has been checked out in the pandemic. I haven't seen, you know, groups like DSA, which I'm a member of, uh, they even really have analysis of the pandemic beyond mm -hmm. we need universal health care, which of course we do, um, single pair, yes, um, but beyond that. Um, and, and then you have this right-wing infrastructure coming in and, uh, you know, distributing wealth upward. You do, like, it's hardening to see some modest uh, expansion of the welfare state under uh, the late, the, what are they calling it, American Recovery Act or something. It's like, that's not, that's not bad, but it's not going to, it's going to barely counteract. Uh, it's a money cannon. There's very little structural change if any in in this bill it's giving it's giving people money that is great for the short term but that money is going to run out um and democrats are already signaling that this might be the only relief that people get for the next two years because uh and and i don't know how much that i don't know how how much that uh that is true um but you know they're they're talking about running on this bill in 2022 and if you're running on th this bill in 2022, that's an indictment of what you plan to do after it. <laughs> yeah, and and I think it's real. What it, what has really drawn my attention is 
the absence of really anything specifically public health related in this bill. Uh, it's mostly seen as an economic recovery bill, economic stimulus bill, um, which is necessary. Uh, and it does provide money for vaccination and for testing, um, but it, it never was conceived of as a bill that would, for example, uh, pay people more money to stay home when they need to, uh, to close non-essential businesses and sort of buffer the economic effects of that. And um, it, it wasn't seen as, you know, where are the grants for, for uh kitchens in restaurants to retrofit themselves to be better ventilated and, uh, you know, allow their workers safer conditions. None of that, um, to the extent that was in there, it was small and, and not its focus. Do you think, do you think that is the result of, of um, an inability of the federal government to enact uh, sort of complicated systematic um, programs like that and so we just use the, the money cannon or is it is there something kind of more uh, nefarious about um neglecting to to build to lasting change because of this crisis? I, yeah i think it's a, a, f a few different things at play one is that people understand health care people understand vaccination um once you get to public health and this whole realm of what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions, it's, it gets into complicated policy that becomes difficult to explain. Uh, that's, that's one aspect. Another aspect is it's easier to, give to print money and give it to people, especially if we're not worrying about inflation, uh, than it is to take on business interests. So it's easy to give workers money but harder to um, regulate business in a way that their, their workers would be safer. And uh, a lot of, despite what a lot of governors say, COVID is an occupational illness. It is spreading at workplaces. It is spreading in people's homes that are bringing it back from workplaces. Um, so they, it kind of like, this is a very loose metaphor but it kind of reminds me of Latin America during the, the so-called pink tide when a lot of mm -hmm. uh, these left governments, um, they, they took money and they gave it to the poor, which was great, but they didn't like try to restructure society really. Um, they didn't take on their corporate interests. And uh, when, when they lost power, um, a lot of these gains fell, fell away. And you see the same similar thing in the US where we're giving people some money. There's also a, a child benefit in, in the American Recovery Act, um, which is you know, good, but we're not, seeing, uh, we're not seeing anything that could alienate business interests. Do you, um, so in terms of, in terms of restructuring uh, society, what do you think is the, would be the ideal public health response to COVID? I mean, obviously you support a paid lockdown. I think, I think everybody here, every, everybody in here agrees with that, but what else, what else would you like to see? Yeah, so there, there's a whole arsenal of different options that could be used to, to either suppress COVID to very low levels or to try to completely eliminate community spread. Um, and yeah, I think the, the paid shutdown is really effective. I think 
You know, China was able to test a city the size of New York in a week. Like, there's no reason we shouldn't be able to scale up public health capacity in the U.S. to test uh, millions of additional people a day uh, asymptomatically as as a preventive measure. Um, so, so we re- we really need a very strong preventive public health response that we're not seeing. We need more state capacity to do that. Um, And we need to be thinking more about occupational health, occupational safety regulation, um, allowing individual workers to stay home if they're high risk, if their workplace is unsafe. Um, There's, you know, schools is a whole other category, but (laughs) we both need to suppress community transmission and give schools a lot of resources to eventually be able to open in person. I mean, most of them are open, at least partly in person by now. uh, And many of them don't have the resources to uh, even lower risk to more acceptable levels. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it is frustrating to watch. I I, I wonder what you make of so you brought up China, what you make of the the argument that there's some sort of trade-off between um, safety and liberty or, or, or tyranny and um, freedom. Like the reason that the, um, you know, CCP was able to, to do this so quickly is because they're uh, a, uh, a overreaching sort of control um, government and uh, they were, and we could never have that here. Yeah, um, we, it's probably true. We can never have it here to, to that extent. But if you look at like the diversity, <laughs> <That's hopeful>. of, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, what we have in the U.S. is basically an, an authoritarian government, if you look at like mass incarceration, without like any of the benefits that might be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's kind of, I've never heard it put that way. That's, that's great. Yeah, like we, we have. You heard we it have, here first. All, all the downsides <laughs> of authoritarianism. But with none of the <laughs> Yeah. Um, no, but if you if you look at just like a wide range of countries, Vietnam, Cuba, yes, but also uh, South Korea and Australia and New Zealand, like some of these countries had benefits that we didn't have, and just geographically, like they don't have land borders, for example. Uh, some of them do, but um, they really the common denominator is that there was early decisive action. Um, and then you have seen, even in a place like Australia, where there are moments when um, when spread gets to a fairly high level, and they're they're able to to clamp it down. Um, no, we we could be doing that. Um, may, maybe we wouldn't be able to test ninety nine percent of the population in a city in in a week. But even if we only tested a quarter or fifty percent, like. That would make a huge dent. Often the arguments against um, strong public health measures like paid shutdowns or, or similar is that they won't be implemented perfectly. Uh, but that's co- completely, to me, like not, not a legitimate criticism because we know even imperfect measures can have substantial benefits. Do you think that, um, did you, did you read David Wallace Wells? Um, he's an author. He, he, he wrote a book, um, on climate change that we, we did a segment on, on climate change and we used his, um, his, his book as, as a, as an example or, or a reference, I should say. Let, let me start over. 
<laughs> there was an article published in New York Magazine by author David Wallace Wells, who's done a lot of work on climate change that we've used on this podcast, um, that talks about how the West lost COVID. And it, 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 cites, it says that Western countries had a, a various, uh, various responses to COVID, but have all seemed to drop the ball. And I was wondering if you saw any common denominators um, in terms of, you know, Europe and the U.S. Uh, that may contribute to that. Yeah, um, I guess it depends what you mean by West. And I haven't read the article, um, but if you consider West to be like the global North. Um, Western Western world, global North, sure. Yeah, so, so I would argue that that paints the, the West with too broad of a brush because we have seen... Uh, one, like the Oceania, like New Zealand, Australia responses, and, you know, South Korea is basically global north. Um, two, look at Canada, where you have, like the U.S., a federal system um, where about half the provinces have gone for an elimination strategy and largely succeeded, and the other half have not and have done quite poorly. So I, I don't think... Um, I, I think it needs to be looked at a little more carefully and specifically, but I do think there's important um, political economic questions uh, that shape this. And um, like, where has COVID been the worst? Um, the US, Brazil, the UK, countries with right-wing governments uh, that are, were kind of like rejecting science that were de devaluing lives of the working class before this. Um, and that's really reflected in, in the responses. And then you have the EU, which is like struggling under the weight of its own contradictions before this. So this is hitting countries at a time when like the relation between capital and working class are, you know, are, they already have their positions where uh, like life expectancy was declining in the US before this and wasn't doing too great in a lot of these other countries either uh, largely because of, you know, power was being concentrated towards the top. And, and this is just like me, me that uh, more extreme. I'm processing that this is, this is <laughs> what you're presenting is sort of new information or a new angle that I hadn't even considered that seems the most fucking obvious thing. <laughs> of course, of course, we're not doing the things that we need to do because the people that are dying are not people that they give a shit about. Yep. That is just the most basic, like, oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's social Darwinism, um, which was like back in the day, back a century ago, that was an explicit ideology that people would proudly present themselves as having. Um, and it's no longer quite as acceptable, but it is lurking behind every corner. And you still had the, the most uh, enraging thing that I heard is the uh, – the, uh, higher up of the, at these uh, meat companies were taking bets on how many people would die in their meat packing plants when they were forced to reopen. It's just like, it's, it literally feels like that movie Snowpiercer or something. Um, it's so diabolical. Yeah. And then, and then you have, um, unfortunately, so thankfully some States are sending in teams to vaccinate meat packing workers. Um, but though they're working with the bosses and rightly, understandably, the workers don't trust the bosses. So you're seeing many meatpacking plants, a majority are turning down the vaccine and maybe they would have accepted it if it was offered in a different setting. Um, so it's just like 
every every layer of this is just like compounding the exploitation inequality to to new levels. Do you see it as an offshoot of of neoliberalism? I mean, like on in, in you know I I asked this before, but just just to get an ex- explicit answer, I mean, do you think that this is the result of of this sort of neoliberal dogma that's taken root and it's not just here in the US it's across Europe as well i mean to one degree or another um you know keynes is dead yeah no d- definitely um i mean i i guess it depends how you define neoliberalism and like what are deviations from it but i think like all in all like this pandemic is shaped by concentrations of class power um, you have really weak unions and, and low union density in the U.S., for instance. So there's, there's not going to be that you have here and there people contesting uh, and protesting for safer working conditions, but um, it's not having a systematic effect. There's no social movements like coalescing around a stronger pandemic response. It's uh, like the, the working class and the people of color who are most affected by COVID uh, have been largely suffering as individuals, which I think is quite characteristic of neoliberalism, while you have the corporate interests well-organized, well-represented, and really dominating the direction of the response. Um, and that that response is one where companies are allowed maximum freedom. Individuals are told they're being given freedom because lockdowns take away your freedom, but like freedom to go to a restaurant and eat out and get infected and kill your grandparents uh, is, you know, a freedom with a pretty high price. Um, So it's like a a lot of these, I really think um, infectious disease is such a perfect example of the limits of individual liberties uh, because it's like we, we come into contact with each other and breathe with each other and spread diseases to each other. And this is not something we can solve as individuals with our personal choices. But yet it's been cast inclu- in, in, by Republicans, but also by Democrats as a series of personal choices. Do you wear your mask or not? Do you get vaccinated or not? Do you, you know, uh, go to your friend's party or go on vacation or not? But ignoring the, the questions of like, who who does this serve? Uh, like, what, what is what are the different options in pandemic response? Why are we doing so poorly? Why are we hiring McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group and all of these private consulting firms to run the pandemic response instead of public health agencies? And these public health agencies, a lot of the leadership, hundreds of high-level public health workers have either been fired or resigned across the U.S. And it's not really something that we even talk about in, in our own profession. Uh, let alone, you know, as as a broader part of the public discussion. God, we're fucked. Just are we fucked? <laughs> we're fucked, right? If if we're not fucked, it's because we're lucky. <laughs> it's possible we're not fucked, but there's no, um, you know. But if we come out of it, it's not because it's not because Biden is drastically different from Trump. It's yeah. not because Democrats care a lot more than Republicans. If we come out of it, it's because the vaccines continue to be really effective against transmission, against the new variants, uh, and a lot of people are getting the vaccines and the immunity is staying for a long time. That's like our best hope. Um, but if that doesn't pan out, uh, we're fucked, yeah. Now, 
you tweeted that if you like this response, you know, you're going to love climate change. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's like the darkest place my mind can go. <laughs> and you can see so many parallels. It's like, I'd, I'd love to write a book about how COVID anticipates climate crisis. And in fact, there, there is a book by Andreas Malm that kind of is, is about that. I haven't read it yet. Um, but you should, you should write that book. Yeah. Yeah. You should write um, it and then come on our podcast when it's, you know, well, published. Just the, the idea that we, we can't, we can't deal with climate change because it's an abstract far away threat. And if an immediate threat um, on that scale sort of, approached us, well, then we'd be able to, to deal with it and rally. And, and it's just proven that assumption completely. Well, it's like, faulty. it's like my, my friend Jeff uh, said, like people only respond to crises when they're certain, immediate and catastrophic. And this felt certain, immediate and <laughs> catastrophic, which is what I was, I was <laughs> like, not for, we'll everyone. <laughs> not for everyone, I know, for that's, people that's, in power. It's not, it's not <laughs> catastrophic. But I will, like, I think it's important to point out the initial congressional response to the pandemic in, in the CARES Act, which had some good stuff in it that uh, I, I think needs to get more credit in terms of what's possible in the future, I have to acknowledge what's happened already. And the $600 per week uh, supplement to, to unemployment was great. And for the people who are able to get that money, it raised their income. Uh, it, for three three quarters of them were making more from CARES Act unemployment than they had been making on the job. It allowed a lot of businesses to close down. It gave those businesses money to float them for a while. And then you had, a, you know, not, not everywhere and not as um, comprehensive as necessary, but you did have a lot of states and counties and cities doing partial shutdowns. And those saved a lot of lives. So it's, it's something that did happen here. Why did it happen? There was a lot of uncertainty at that point. One, about who would die also about who would be impacted economically. And there were some optimistic projections about how long COVID would last with some saying it'd be over by the summer. So those factors allowed for a stronger response, but never since then uh, have, have we seen that extended. God damn it. <laughs> oh God. So let's talk about vaccine IP. Okay. As you know, there's a, a number of a number of countries are are trying to get are fighting with drug companies to try to produce the vaccines, and the drug companies are very frustrated about that. They don't like it a lot. Oh, yeah. Don't don't want to do it because the because these these vaccines are are uh, you know they're intellectual property. They represent uh, a huge potential for profit in the future. In fact, you at a recent investor conference. Um, there was some talk among among uh, these uh, these healthcare these pharmaceutical types that you know there's a big potential in the future here. So this is they're they're banking on it. Um, what do you what do you make of it? I mean, obviously, I think you would agree that we need to release that IP, help everybody vaccinate, particularly in the global south, and uh, you know. But but what what do you what do you make of it? This is what we've seen for decades uh, with all sorts of pharmaceuticals, where people in the U.S., but especially in the global south, um, are dying because they can't afford life-saving drugs, and they can't afford them because of these intellectual property rights. Um, 
and like that's bad. There are mechanisms in existence to suspend intellectual property rights, um, and we're not seeing them enacted. So this is one about profit for pharmaceutical companies. Um, that that benefited significantly from public money, uh, and even at least the Moderna vaccine is using intellectual property developed by the U.S. government in the National Institute of Health. Uh, but they're able to profit off of that, um, and and all we we can even within the U.S. there are plans to you know declare the pandemic over and then increase the price of the vaccines to uh, what what they would normally be on the market. Um, they, they won't be, there won't be expenses to people who are insured, but if you're uninsured, uh, that, that could be a barrier. Um, and then, yeah, globally, like we need Brazil and South Africa and India to be making these, these vaccines. Um, and the U S wants to be manufactured. The U S would like a monopoly on vaccine production because it helps them, uh, push around countries. Like there is a Diplomatic, diplomatic or foreign policy aspect to providing countries with vaccines. Um, so that's that's one thing that that has to be considered. Um, it's like, thankfully, it looks like some other countries either have developed or are on their way to developing effective vaccines. The the Sputnik Five, uh, according to their data, is pretty effective. Um, Cuba's Soberana Two um, looks like pretty promising. Um, so hopefully we, we reach a case, uh, a place where other countries outside the EU, outside the US and UK have developed, uh, you know, free vaccines that they can provide much of the rest of the world. What's, what's your take on, on Dr. Fauci, you know, America's, <laughs> America's doctor. Uh, I, I don't know if you saw, but, um, he was speaking to the biotechnology innovation organization, which represents drug manufacturers like Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson. And during that, during that uh, discussion, he, he came out against price controls for COVID vaccines. He said, I've never seen a successful attempt at controls and acknowledged that quote, it's a profit driven industry. Um, yeah. Fauci has never been one to to rock the boat. <laughs> That's like the politest way I can I can put it. Do you do you think that he's? I mean, how much do you think he's playing politics here, and how much do you think he's actually giving public health advice? He's. I mean, I think in his eyes they're one and the same. Um, and I th I think a lot of the public health. Well, like I am the Senate or I am public health. <laughs> Pretty much, like, I, it was very illuminating when he said um, like, oh, we, I was thinking when fewer people were willing to get vaccinated, we should say the, the herd immunity threshold is lower. But now that more people are willing to get vaccinated, I can be more honest and say it's higher. Like, <laughs> it's, and it was the same thing with masks too. It seemed like initially when they weren't um, telling people to wear masks, it seemed like an obvious thing, a respiratory illness, masks will block it. They ostensibly misled the public because <laughs> and you they thought and I, they were the greater good. You and I were those misled assholes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we went, Mark and I went, went uh, on a, a trip to uh, Mexico and we, uh, we were in the airport Right as this was sort of breaking out, like in March, um, and we didn't wear masks. 
Is, we were we were told it was. I, I don't know. Honestly, I can't put my. I can't even like imagine. I don't have a theory of mind for what I was thinking back then because it seems so so obvious. But we were. I mean, talk about a way to undermine trust in experts and institutions is to to treat them like children instead of saying don't get masks because um, they need to be prioritized for frontline workers right now, which makes sense. And then we'll, once, once the bottleneck is opened, we all need to be wearing them. They sort of mis chose to misled pe mislead people and said to avoid setting off some sort of panic buying situation. And, it, and it's the, the, the mask efficacy thing has been undermined ever since. Mm -hmm. What about just wear a cloth? Wear cloth, reserve medical grade masks for people who need them, but wear a cloth over your face, wear a bandana, wear anything. Yeah. And like, I, I knew, honestly, I knew there was an issue when in early April, the Cuban government was instructing its citizens on how to make homemade masks and starting mass production. And here, here's a country whose number one export is medical care to countries with lots of infectious diseases. And the CDC <laughs> recommendation was one month behind Cuba. Um, and like that, at that point, I was like, this, this may be come to, this may come to be seen as the biggest mistake in, in the entire pandemic response. Uh, but yeah, you see over and over again, a sort of paternalism where they're trying to give people a rosy picture or an incomplete picture because it's for their own good um, or for, for the good of the overall response. It's just like, you can be honest with people about the truth, about uncertainty. And there's still a lot of scientific uncertainty about how COVID exactly works. Um, and that's not the direction that most of these people, whether in government or academia, who get in front of media, um, they're, not, they're not choosing to be honest. Why, why do you think that is? Um, I've thought about this a bunch. I can't really get into their heads. I do think- um, Yeah, just speculate. Yeah. <laughs> I do at least like the specific question I've been thinking about is why have so few of the pundits um, been vocal about uh, the need for stronger public health interventions like paid shutdown or, or like other other sorts. Um, and I think what one thing is like it's this echo chamber effect where rather than they say what they believe needs to happen. They'll say what they think is going to happen. And uh, because that's more likely to bear out and then they have more speaking engagements because they're correct, they're, they're, but they're also not alienating uh, like people who control access to media. Like I, we had our paid shutdown op-ed rejected by multiple mainstream outlets before it ended up in, in a more left-leaning one. Okay, wait, wait, wait. So. How, there were three of you, you said? Yeah. And you're all epidemiologists. Yeah, this is me. You were the focus on public health. What were the other two? Uh, I mean, we're all pretty, no, we're, we're all, we all have similar expertise. One, one is a professor of epidemiology at Columbia. Another is University of Pittsburgh. Um, but yeah, we, you know, we're, we should, this seems like a pretty sensible and like should be centrist opinion in a lot of other countries it would be, but it takes, you know, it takes two Sorry, it takes three socialists publishing in a left-wing magazine something that should be a mainstream part of the discourse. That is absolutely disgraceful. Meanwhile, uh, Professor Oster can can say, you know, oh, kids are fine. Kids are, treat them like a vaccinated grandparent. Like, 
did, I don't, did you see her, her like apology thread on this? Like, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't clear when I said that, but I do stand by it. You know, kids are <laughs> fine. It's like, sometimes kids are fine. Sometimes they're not fine. Sometimes you get like an eighth grader in the hospital on a ventilator. Yeah. And there, um, I would say I've had experience with the Atlantic um, where I can see the double standards at play. Uh, so a colleague and I, and this colleague has a much higher profile than me, were um, talking about like equity and vaccine distribution and making the argument that we really need to prioritize frontline workers um, who tend to be people of color, who tend to have a high risk of both death at a young age and transmission to others. And we this was at first solicited, but ultimately rejected. They wanted hard numbers on like how many people are in each of these categories, older, essential worker, et cetera. What were the overlaps? The data didn't exist. Meanwhile, they're publishing Emily Oster, who's making verifiably false claims in like, I, I went through this article and there, there's like three things that like are either just completely wrong or highly misleading. Um, and that's before you even get to like the, the metaphor of child, like a vaccinated grandparent. You know, I, I spoke to, I, I spoke to uh, two epidemiologists for a recent article that I, I did. I think I sent you this article. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they, they were basically warning. Um, there was Deep D. Gerdesani and uh, Robert Morris. And they, they were warning that reopening schools is a bad idea, that why are we rushing to do this? You know, you, like kids are kids spread, do spread the virus. The global evidence shows that kids do spread the virus. And here we are. We can't even we can't even have that discussion in the U.S. because they've latched on to uh, studies. People have latched on to studies that were flawed from the beginning. They're based on symptoms. As we know, children are, mo are largely asymptomatic. Uh, and, and it's like that we, you know, the, the believe science crowd is like, we know the science because we have these flaws and, and ignore all of the subsequent research. Like, it's just, it's shocking to me as somebody who, who does, who does work in media that we can't even have a conversation about an honest conversation about this because it's become so politicized. And I thought that, and I, I think that that politic, uh, politicization started under Trump, but it has continued under Biden. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And as a, as, as some, as a public health expert, I mean, you've got to be, you've got to be going banging your head against a wall every, I mean, every day. And this, this stuff keeps me up at night until like four in the morning or later, you've just got to be like, I don't know. Just how have you been holding up and how have you, what, what has it been like for you watching all of this sort of play out? Yeah. I mean, at times it was maddening at, in the, I would say in the first month I was spending like 12 hours a day, just trying to consume every piece of information I could about the pandemic. And it was, it was like rarely anything new. Um, so that's been hard. I do, you know, I have a supportive group of colleagues who we can complain uh, about things together that that's, that's really helpful. But I'll, I'll say like the school debates have been among the most maddening, at least in the last several months, because um, when it comes to like opening up restaurants or wedding venues or whatever, 
there's no pretense there that it's a safe thing to do or a good idea. Um, to, to the extent that governors are justifying it, they're saying like, oh, we need to, we need these businesses to make money. It's, uh, but with the schools in particular, they want to have it both ways. They, they want to like create risky conditions without proper mitigation. Um, and, but they also want to pretend that there's no trade-offs and there's no costs in human life to that. Uh, when, you know, I do have sympathy for people who don't like their children aren't benefiting from learning at home or learning in a hybrid model or whatever. Um, but to pretend that there's no trade-offs is wrong. And it's fascinating to even compare the U.S., debate about school reopenings to other countries. Um, in the UK, I think the debate might even be worse there. In the UK, there are classrooms typically with no masking and no distancing in the classroom. And even there, you have some scientists claiming that there's no meaningful contribution to spread from children being together in a closed space with no masks. Um, there, there was a really well-designed study in Sweden showing that teachers were twice as likely to be infected with COVID if they had to go in person versus online. Um, and that parents- that tracks, by the way, with what, our, with what our CDC released, that office workers were twice as likely to be uh, COVID patients, or COVID patients were twice as likely to work in an office than at home. Yeah. And then, and then parents of school-age kids who were in person were something like a third more likely to, to show- um, the, on symptomatic positive tests. But then the conclusion in this paper was, oh, there's still no meaningful spread of, because <laughs> uh, somehow in their analysis, they like said, we're not going to think about teachers. We're just going to think about parents. And we're not going to think about like grandparents or chains of transmission that go two or three hops away from, from the student. Um, I would be, you know, I might disagree but a process that actually acknowledged there's trade-offs and was willing to accept, uh, minimize risk and accept a certain level of risk of opening schools um, and like try to synthesize research and ask whether or not different like setups were keeping mis risk below a certain level. Like that at least would be a rational process. We're not having that at all. We're just seeing like every study being either ignored or being rounded up to like, oh, see, this, is, this proves that everything's safe. Well, it gets back to that paternalization kind of by the experts. It's like we um, you need to accept that there's a certain level of risk in 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 any it's just a trade-off for for living, and then we have to discuss about what level of risk at which point is that level of risk become um, intolerable. And maybe people have different um, opinions about what that level is for schools. But to just say, oh, no, it's good now. Um, is is a dishonest and the people putting these things out must know it's dishonest and the public kind of sees through this and sees it's dishonest and we i, I think it just contributes to this this huge this there's there's an epidemic of distrust of of experts um that that has been going on for a while now but is it, i think been amplified by this current pandemic and it's dangerous because we we need to listen to the experts but they need to be honest with us yeah, and and in in the case of Emily Oster, she her project is actually funded by 
anti-union pro-charter school groups like the Walton Foundation, the Arnold you Foundation. don't say. <laughs> um, and Oster actually presented at an event with a, uh, an education reform group and the CEO of Chicago Public Schools, um, basically trying to weaken the position of the union uh, that was demanding CTU, that was demanding stronger protections. She's also tied to that study that shows that, that said that three feet and six yep. feet are, are the same. Yep. So she, she, the way it works in medical publishing is like sometimes what there's the a fuck? dozen authors. I'm sorry, but what the <laughs> fuck? Like, Jesus Christ. Like, if you're taking a position and it present, and, and even one person dies because of that, like, that's on, that's on you, right? I mean, I, I don't think they think like that. <laughs> um, but then some of these other, I'd call them school reopening advocates because they have, they, to summarize their position, like send kids to school, all they need is masks, maybe crack open the window, everything's fine. That's basically their position. Um, the, other, the other ones who believe that are, and this, this is even more fascinating to me, they're not connected to uh, right-wing foundations. They're largely involved in battles with their own school systems that they send their children to and don't like the positions the, the unions have taken. So I'm, I'm in Boston, Massachusetts, in Brookline, Massachusetts, which is sort of a suburb, much wealthier and whiter than Boston. Um, this set of public health experts have been fighting it out with the teachers and their union there over like what conditions are acceptable. Um, and this those same people have national platforms and they, they make, uh, they, they write op-eds in major publications and it's really just reflecting their, their personal struggle where the pandemic presents itself largely as an inconvenience to them rather than a, a lethal threat to their lives. So it's, it's, it's parents who want their kids back in school because they're sick of babysitting essentially. Exactly. And even, even Emily Oster in an interview and like, she says that the reason she got involved in this is because she was spent like her kids were spending too much time with her and, and she was becoming <laughs> irritated. She, she straight up said that. Um, oh my God. <clears throat> you know, I saw an interesting statistic that, that, that black parents are more likely to keep their children home. Yeah. This, so this is like a white suburbanite issue. Yeah. I mean, so the, the, Poll I saw one was that only 15% of parents um, want their children to have more in-person school than they do. Um, but the entire framing is is a, is around them, uh, and and the the fraction who wanted to have less in-person school was pretty similar, it was like 10% um, <laughs> to start with. And then yeah, it tends to be um, parents of color and lower-income parents who are more hesitant about sending their kids to school, understandably because there's more risk to them. Um, and they, they have less trust in the school because their schools have fewer resources to mitigate risk. Um, so that makes a lot of sense, though there's this paternalistic attitude on the part of a lot of these reopening advocates saying that, um, you know, we need to think about this, the students who are worst off. This is an issue of racial inequity that they can't have high quality in-person instruction. Um, but the reason a lot of these students of color are at home is because their parents want them at home for very understandable reasons. And even when their schools are reopening, like in Chicago, when they reopened, I think 80% of students, largely black and Latino 
stayed home because their parents had them stay home. Um, but the the next and the scary pop step of this fight is coercing parents to send their kids back because the teachers are coerced to be there. Um, but it, it up to now has been a largely an option that parents can choose or not choose to have their their students present in in the building. Hey, we got a true anti truancy crusader in the as the vice president <laughs> of the United States. Let's break <laughs> out that. <laughs> <laughs> let's break out those those cops. Let's get them. Let's get them on the streets. Get them banging yeah. on doors. Yeah, yeah, and like yes, yeah, so at some at some point in in our trajectory, students should be back in classrooms. Um, but they're certainly going to do it when it's too early. I think Texas has made the move to do it. I think Pennsylvania has made the move to do it. This is eliminating hybrid at home options. Um, while also not providing things like universal asymptomatic testing that would keep students and, and teachers safer. Or universal free health care. Well, yeah, of course. Everyone, of they course. Get, everyone they get sick. So, okay, so we've we've gone, it's we're over an hour now. Last last question for you. Uh, Mark, do you wanna if you have a final question, by all means, then I got one more and then we'll I have a I have a quick question, but we'll save mine for last because it might take us down a weird path. Okay, fair um, enough. So my question then would be: Give your advice to the people listening to this. What do you recommend they do to keep themselves safe um, in the face of uncaring uh, political leaders, out of touch experts? and suburbanite angry parents who just want to send their kids back to school. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's hard. Like number one advice, get vaccinated when you can um, get, you know, their masks work. Um, there are masks of different quality. There are higher quality masks than others. Get a high quality mask, like a KN95, KN95, KF94, and 95, like those are all good. Um, and, you know, try to get involved in collective action because that's the way we change things, whether it's in your workplace or broader community, like that's how we protect our, we can, we can really only provide protection collectively and that requires organizing. Great. Well, I think that is all great advice. I have, I have one more question since you're here and this is something that's been bugging me. Um, and you seem like a great person to ask, what do you make of this whole lab grown COVID, um, hypothesis? Cause I thought this was some fringe crackpot thing, but I've seen serious people, um, talking about this. Um, and I, I mean, I, I think, I don't know how serious you want, you would take, you know, Brett Weinstein, the, um, the, uh, evergreen state university, uh, evolutionary biologist, but he's like gotten on board with this and and making some good points about, or to me seemingly good points about how COVID tends to attack multiple um, systems in the body from like the brain to um, heart tissue and all these other things and making, building this whole case that it was, might've been accidentally released from a lab in China and we're, we're covering it up. You know, you Mark, don't, we don't have to, to dwell say, on I, this, but uh, I, I am glad that this is this is your last question. Yeah, yeah, no, we don't have to dwell on it. I just, I, I felt like I had to ask you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I think there's basically like three three scenarios for how how it happens, and one we can easily discount. So the three are one it was created deliberately created, 
Uh, two, it was collected in the wild and held in a lab and accidentally got out. And three, it was naturally spilled over, uh, eco ecological spillover in, in the world, out in the world, out in the community. Um, so obviously it's not number three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so num number one, like people have looked at this, people who know a lot more about genetics than me, for instance, have looked at this. It's extremely, extremely unlikely that this was genetically engineered because there are like platforms for genetically engineering things and they have certain genetic signatures and those signatures are absent from, from this. So I would say like, let's, let's discount that one. Um, it is, there's some circumstantial evidence like, okay, there is a lab in Wuhan and it uh, does research on coronaviruses. And we have the first cases coming out of Wuhan. Like that's basically the only evidence there is there. Is it possible? Yes. Um, is it likely? I would say no, but anything, anything's possible. Ecological spillover is something that happens all the time. And it's something that like this, this pandemic happening through ecological spillover out, out in the world is something that scientists have been warning about for decades. So it shouldn't be that unlikely that it just happened on its own. And I do like, I haven't, I don't have very thoroughly developed thoughts on this, but I do wonder like what, what happens in people's minds when they think that a, they're trying to explain some major catastrophe or crisis and they, something about their desire for there to have been agency behind it. And so I actually think mm -hmm. there's probably something deeply unsettling about things happening at, at random um, mm -hmm. or, or like so far beyond human control that can so profoundly affect us. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I think about like, like e even as I don't, you know, I, I would say like, let's say 90% chance of ecological spillover versus accidental introduction. Like that, that's like what I would just like parse it as. But I do think the the question itself is, is an important question of like why, why it's important for people to know. Well, it's hard. Well, it's, it's, hard it is, it's hard for people to accept that, that, you know, the universe around them is random and doesn't care about yeah, them. There, there's, there's, you know, some subconscious kind of. Yeah. And, and, but it's also really, it's really important to like point out the causation of ecological spillover, which is not in this case, one industrial farming, not as much in this case two um, just human encroachment onto wild lands, bringing people into contact with animals more often. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we have been seeing spillover with increased frequency uh, or, or in the last in the last decades, and and on top of all the other ecological crises we're facing, this is this is another one. All right, so so let's say you you got you know last last thirty seconds here. What do you want to say? Yeah. So one uh, just one possible scenario is that we have a lot of we have all genre of article right now asking when does the pandemic end, and often concluding that it ends when we get about the same number of annual deaths uh, from flu and from COVID. Um, so that would still be tolerating tens of thousands of deaths, if not more, largely of people of color, of working class people of color, um, on top of all the other things that are coming. So you're saying that, you're saying that we have, we're so, ab 
we are so far removed from a zero COVID strategy that even beating this pandemic probably looks like the flu. Tens like, of thousands of deaths every year. Tens of thousands of deaths every year. Yeah. And I honestly, I don't even know how we keep it to tens of thousands since it's so much deadlier and more contagious than flu, even with, you know, like hopefully you get vaccination numbers high, but you have very clearly people willing to accept this as a fairly widespread endemic disease. Um, but that, that itself has some pretty devastating consequences. Oh my God. <laughs> We're so fucked. God, it's just like, it's like, and you, and we have people talking about summers. We have people talking about like, oh, it's going to be a great summer. It might, it might be a great summer. It might be the last great summer. (laughs) (laughs) How many people do you think are going to ultimately, you know, we're at 545,000 deaths. Yeah. We were at 535,000 like a week and a half ago. We were 400,000 when Donald Trump left office. Yeah. So what, one thing is that um, these deaths are absolutely being undercounted. Um, so we're probably at like 700,000 already. So yeah, that, that will be... Think about that. Yeah. I mean, my, my dissertation actually was about undercounting and mortality data, looking at police killings being undercounted. Um, so I know a lot about how like the mortality reporting works. Um, yes, Governor so, yeah. Cuomo about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's <laughs> the expert. Um, it depends like what point do you count up to and uh, what, you know, what's the political response um, if you were to count between now and widespread vaccination, um, I don't know, like assuming vaccination remains pretty effective, we might, and, and assuming that we have like the seasonality of things going down over the summer, like that's optimistic. Maybe it's only tens of thousands of more, but that to me, that's like a pretty optimistic projection. We're never going to get over the, the the scars that this is carving into our society. We're we're never they're never going to heal, or it's at so, least not in our lifetimes. It's weird to think about like the the absence of memory of the nineteen eighteen flu pandemic, um, which was barely barely acknowledged in in history in people's lives, and there's like one memorial to it. And I just really wonder like what happened there, and like what what the memory of it is going to be here this time yeah well I, I hope i hope we learn the lessons i've heard i've heard epidemiologists say that this is this is just a warm-up like the, as far as fatality rate and everything goes um something oh, that yeah, spreads like this it. that was had a 10 percent mortality rate is completely within the realm of possibility or 20 percent. i mean we, we there's there are potential candidates out there and uh, the bird something that targets and, younger people yeah 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 although I, I i think you know if young white people were dying i think the response would have been <laughs> oh, much man. different so you see this as a class issue and as a race issue yeah i mean they're very tied together um like even even within the same economic like income group um people of color are much more likely to have high-risk jobs and then you think about like housing wealth and how 
um, you know, history of even legal legalized racial discrimination in housing, um, like has transferred over to where people live now. Uh, a lot, a lot of people are getting infected at home, and if you have less housing wealth, you have multi generational households, smaller quarters. Like it's all all tied together. Thank you so much, Justin, for taking the time and, and speaking Thank with you. us. And, and I, I, I apologize that some of our some of our questions may have been a little all over the place, mainly. Oh, that was great. But but I do I do really appreciate you taking the time. Um, this has been absolutely fascinating and enlightening. Um, tell everyone where they can find you, where they can read the stuff that you're putting out, and uh, yeah. Yeah, so my, my Twitter is jfeldman underscore epi, E-P-I. Um, I have my pins tweet is uh, an article I wrote for Jacobin about COVID and occupational exposure. So I would, you know, if you want to start somewhere, I would start there. And thanks so much for having me. We hope that you'll come back, um, you know, and hopefully, hopefully we'll have, we'll have some developments, uh, positive developments in the meantime, but if not the bad ones, Hey, they're also, you know, we, you know, at least it's a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. Let me, and let me end this recording. Audio editing by Alex Koch. Original theme music by Direwolf. <laughs>